Amanda Gorman, if we remember, one of the youngest individuals ever to give a poem at the inauguration for our current president. And she gave a, a speech saying that the hill we climb to recognize that there's always light if we're brave enough to see it, if we're brave enough to be it. I've been talking to Dr. Khadija Brethet, heart transplant cardiologist, a transplant specialist. So there is actually a logbook, uh, uh, a registry, like you talked about, the National Transplantation Pregnancy Registry, NTPR, which you advise us it's now international. And it records outcomes of pregnancy after transplantation because there is constant and new developments and different medications used in this process. And all individual physicians and centers have different experiences, both positive and negative outcomes. And all of these things are being recorded in this logbook or registry that has more than 2,000 pregnancy outcomes in female transplant recipients. So how does the heart rank of all the commonly transplanted human organs, you know, and you made a distinction between uh, like, this is not a kidney transplant, this is a heart transplant earlier in the talk. How does a heart rank? And also what is the likelihood looking at some of these outcome data of women having live births or successful pregnancies after some of this cardiac transplantation? Now, I can't answer all of those um, questions because that's not an area that I spend a lot of um, research time in, but I can tell you when it comes to what organs being transplanted the most, the, the heart is not at the number one. And it's mostly because some of these other organs like kidneys can be given from a living donor. So from a person that's has another, their other kidney is healthy. They were born at least with two kidneys where they can donate one to someone else that they know or someone that they don't. Whereas for a heart, somebody has to die first. And it's not just um, anyone that dies, um, their organ can be given. Um, the heart has to be just right. That The way that they die has to be in a way that is um, the heart is still protected. And generally, it's preferred if it's within a younger individual as well, because older individuals are, have higher risk of heart disease. So it's the number one cause of death in the U.S. And so often can't get them from um, older individuals unless it's a really healthy heart. So it for that reason, those reasons combine the number of organs that are actually available for those that need it um, is pretty limited and pretty small. And there's more that we can do to help extend access to organs, such as becoming a donor. And there are reasons that people may not want to become a donor um, and valid ones. And those are important things to discuss with. Um, family, um, with your healthcare team, 
And if you make these decisions that you want to proceed with that to, to get it documented, um, to speak to a member of um, United um, Network for Organ Sharing to help document your wishes. Um, but it's incredibly important too that we, we document those with their family and their loved ones to let them know what your wishes would be. Well, thank you. So for our listeners out there, you have been listening to Dr. Khadija Brethet. She is a tenured associate professor of medicine at Indiana University Division of Cardiology and advanced heart failure transplant cardiologist with the advanced heart failure mechanical circulatory support and cardiac transplantation team at Indiana University Health. I'm going to have Dr. Brethet tell us some fun things she does in her spare time when I finish this introduction. So Dr. Brethet graduated from Northwestern University with a Bachelor of Science degree in biomedical engineering. She is a graduate of the University of Michigan Medical School with distinction in service. She completed training in internal medicine at Duke University Medical Center, cardiology, and advanced heart failure transplant subspecialty fellowships at Ohio State University. She completed a postdoctoral research fellowship funded by the National Institutes of Health and the American Heart Association while obtaining a Master of Science in Clinical Science at the University of Colorado. Dr. Brethet is board certified in internal medicine, cardiology, and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology. As a physician scientist, Dr. Brethet, you have developed several types of studies of humans including the best kind of studies that we know to draw conclusions from scientifically called randomized controlled trials. And you've done so many community interventions focused on reducing racial and gender disparities in heart disease resulting in over 100 papers. So can you tell us, <laughs> a fun thing about yourself? And can you paint a picture of your day-to-day -day activities? I am curious to know myself. <laughs> oh, okay. So first question, fun things I do. So I really enjoy spending time with um, my family and with my friends. Um, that could be going to festivals, hanging out, um, hiking is fun. And I am a beach person. I love the beach. <laughs> Although I feel like I get sunburned a little more often as I get older. Um, other question, what's a day to day like? So my days are incredibly flexible. So as a um, physician scientist and heart failure transplant cardiologist, I could be one week rounding um, on advanced heart failure patients um, with some of the most critically ill um, patients in the hospital um, that are awaiting a heart transplant or gotten a heart transplant or have a ventricular assist device or 
have uh, worsening heart failure, for which we're trying to do our best to treat them and help them live a longer life and help them stay out of the hospital and help them feel better. Um, on days when I'm spending more time doing research, I do I work with a lot of teams and people. And so we have different meetings with our teams with how to discuss how we're going to do something or how we're going to change some system or change some process. Spend a lot of time writing, um, a lot of time thinking and thinking about the different issues that I see um, with clinical care and trying to understand critically how we can address them and untangle them to lead to um, systematic changes to improve healthcare delivery. I also spent a lot of time mentoring and um, helping um, build the next generation of cardiologists and scientists. Well, so off of that, if there's a young girl, black or white, you know, young girl in America today that wonders, how can I grow up to be like Dr. Breckett? What message would you give like a young preschool, high school, young woman just looking? Because I feel so honored to be talking to you and you are so accomplished and you are this beautiful African-American woman that loves red, you love the color red, but what could you tell a young person aspiring to be like you? Um, that r- reminds me to think of, uh, if, and thank you so much for that, it's so sweet of you. Um, Amanda Gorman, if we remember um, when she gave, one of the, I believe one of the youngest individuals ever um, to give a poem at the inauguration for our current president. And she gave a, a speech saying that um, the hill we climb. And so I, I really encourage the young women, young little girls um, that may want to be a cardiologist, may want to be a physician scientist, may just still be thinking about what they want to be to recognize that there's always light if we're brave enough to see it if we're brave enough to be it. So I hope that with today that I can encourage you to um, recognize that you can be whatever you want to be, to be encouraged by what you want to see differently, by the change that you want to see in this world, to recognize that you can build the skill set to make that change and let that change come to be and to not be um, denied or um, discouraged by things that are happening in the world or by others that say that maybe you can't do it because you're a woman, because you're Black, because you're a little girl, um, to recognize that you can still do all these things. Um, one of the, the main drivers for me um, with this field is, is my faith and recognizing some of the things that I believe that God has put on my heart to do. Um, on this earth has been the fuel behind the work that I do each day and behind the dreams that I have of what could be. And this is also very much supported by the, the love and support of my family and my close friends. Wow. I, I just want to thank you for also your humility. You know, you are you are this very accomplished person. And this is this must be all God, you know, very accomplished, and you are yet given 
you know, time and podcasts like this because you just want to reach everybody. So thank you so very much for everything that you do. And we're going to go back on, you know, you serve uh, as chair on multiple national committees for American Heart Association, Heart Failure Society of America, and Association of Black Cardiologists. You serve on multiple editorial boards and have led the development of the disparities research guidelines for the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association journals. You are passionate indeed about reducing racial, ethnic, and gender disparities in heart failure. How about your work at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute? Can you please tell us a little bit about maybe one of the several work you've done there? Uh, so the, the NHLBI is a, um, a major funding institution in the United States that's funded a lot of my work for many years now. One of the projects I'm most proudest of that currently working on is trying to improve the way decisions are made to decide who receives advanced heart failure therapies. So talking about the transplants and ventricular assist devices. And so I'm conducting a randomized controlled pragmatic cluster trial. And I, I know that's a mouthful, but essentially I'm taking 14 centers across the country that are high quality centers that care about how we do things and can we do things differently and are for half of them providing different types of skill sets and training to help improve how that decision is made to hopefully reduce bias to make the decision making more objective and to improve the quality of the, the group and the group dynamics which we believe from some preliminary data may lead to more equitable care. And so really excited to be leading that and to be working with, with so many amazing sites that really also care about these, these issues and are willing to join and lead in this process. Thank you. In your 2019 Breathed et al. publication in the Journal of the American Heart Association, and you have published several high-impact journals. But in this journal, you showed two exact patients with almost perfect similarities in their health conditions, their height, their weight, their insurance type. The only difference was their race. However, they received strikingly antithetical care for their heart condition. What are the complex factors associated with disparities in access to advanced therapies as you explained further in your articles, uh, 2018 Breathed et al. publication in the Journal of Racial and Ethnic Health Disparities? And so it came from um, first directly observing some of the stuff as I trained and as I um, practice in multiple different institutions, you're kind of starting to see some similar patterns that were shared by um, colleagues, um, also seeing similar patterns um, at their their centers. And I thought, well, let, let's actually do the 
rigorous research to understand what is happening. And in fact, we did this with well over um, 400 healthcare professionals and make decisions about who gets the heart transplants. They were randomized to a black man or white man with identical um, clinical and social histories and observed different findings where, patient, where the participants thought that, you know, um, especially when they went through interviews, thinking out loud, step-by-step, step, how um, how are we making the decision, found that um, social support mattered the most, although that's something that's measured currently in most places in a subjective way. Um, adherence was also very important with making the decision about whether or not to offer therapies. If the patient was Black race, they're less likely to recommend offering therapies. Um, the Black patient was thought to be less trustworthy, less adherent, whereas the white patient was thought to um, have, you know, his disease just caught up with them and he should get the benefit of the doubt. And that led to recommendation of supporting heart transplant for the white patient and ventricular assist device for the Black patient. And we did another version, kind of the same study with a much smaller number of individuals randomizing them to a black woman or white woman and a couple um, black men or white men and found um, this time in this study that the major recommendation was ventricular assist device for everybody. And there were different types of concerns about the patients when it was a woman, more concerns about the finances, more concerns about them having children, more concerns about the spouse being the caregiver, because how could the spouse be the caregiver for uh, a female patient? And these things were even worse when looking at the, the Black woman patient. And these things that I think just really illustrated um, how bias can creep into how these decisions are made and how um, I think ubiquitous some of these things happen in our day-to-day -day life that occur outside of medicine and now I think more clearly occur in how we provide care. And that's what led to a lot of the, the studies that we've done to try to identify how to fix this. And that's by addressing the common things that we found that were statistically the, the greatest factors was how people assess um, social support, how um, bias contributes to the problem, and also how group dynamics impact whether or not a healthcare team will allocate therapies to the patient, which we found to be if the program is more dysfunctional during the meeting to less likely to get uh, advanced therapies if the patient's a woman and conversely if it's a man. And so that, that's kind of the premise of what the current um, trial that I'm leading is based upon is trying to address each of those three factors um, simultaneously to help reverse the, the thinking, change the system and change the outcome. Wow, wow. You know, and that reminds me of, you know, we talked about the heart transplant, the left ventricular assist device. I mean, can we use some cells to maybe grow portions of a new heart in maybe using stem cells from the cord blood of a newborn to eventually reduce this scarcity of the heart organ being available for transplant? That sounds really cool. And there have been individuals kind of looking in that area. Unfortunately, most of the research to date has not been promising in that area. 
maybe a little bit more closer is getting a heart transplant from an animal or from a pig, which we call xenotransplantation. And that's actually been done more recent, but it hasn't reached the level of success that would be found using a, a human organ. But it's possible as time goes on, as research continues, that that may be a more viable option and make transplant more accessible. But for now, we're still stuck with some of the old things. And similar with the trickler assist devices, they're improving as well. Is it? I think it's debatable depending on who you talk to. Are the um, similarities in the risk and benefits? But I think um, it's not quite where we want it to be to say that they're equitable. Um, it's one versus the other. Rather, what is what are the problems that are happening with the particular individual, and um, which treatment will help give that person better life, longer life, healthier life? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Thank you. 